Hey everybody, welcome to Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. We are uh, about to boot it on up and uh, continue our discussion of comic books and pop culture, because that's what it is. It took me all these episodes to figure out. We're just connecting all the, the tissue that, that, that uh, weaves popular movie and cartoons and television with the comic books that we love, the source material that we love, because uh, without this source material... We are definitely not living in this amazing age that we're living in now, this kind of um, resurgent golden age of material where so many great comic book uh, series, stories, characters are are just punching their way on to screens uh, all, all across every possible platform. And, and it's a very exciting time. And so that's what, what, what we're going to deep dive today into something that has been kind of uh, lingering in me for, for years now. And it, and it really gets back to this discussion that I was having uh, on one of the, the Facebook groups that I frequent. Now let's stop here. It's, it's, um, th- th- let's discuss Facebook and Facebook groups because without Facebook groups, I am not on Facebook anymore. In fact, Facebook groups probably re-engaged me with that particular platform in a way that I hadn't been engaged in years. I had, uh, let, let's say the, the years of like 2009 to 2014, I had completely uh, moved away from Facebook. It was not an exciting platform for me at all anymore. I was really engaged heavily in Twitter and the constant discourse and the conversations and the narratives that were jumping all across Twitter. It was uh, honestly before Twitter became this toxic place that I believe it is now. I hang around on Twitter. I talk at an all-time less ratio than I've ever, um, you know, talked or discussed with people on Twitter. It it has become kind of a de facto uh, news platform, breaking news. You're going to get it there first, always. And, uh, and then it also has this political component that maybe it started uh, in the last you know few years of the Obama administration. Maybe it was the Trump candidacy and the original, the, 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 the early Trump years that, that really almost calcified uh, uh, Twitter and just hardened it and made it this uglier place where just it, it's so about political divisiveness and, uh, and people can say some really crazy things. I have doubled down on being more careful than ever on that platform, but without a doubt, from about 2009 to to 2016, I I was all about Twitter 24-7, just lived to get on in the morning, to stay on all day, and my activity on there would would bear this out. I was constantly um, recommending, and I was also sometimes taking out my grievances on Twitter. Uh, because I have removed that kind of airing of grievances, uh, <laughs> thank you, George Costanza and, and, uh, and Festivus, because I've, I've taken out the, air, the airing of the grievance factor and I'm not using it as a bludgeon anymore. It, has, um, it doesn't have quite the same tool. I think if you are angry and passionate and especially in this, you know, it's either cancel culture or consequence culture, depending on where LeVar Burton is standing on, on, on uh, you know, one day to the next. Um, whatever it is, it can be a really effective bludgeon. So during this time, Facebook became much more interesting to me as groups were pop- popping up. I started my own group. I have a Rob Liefeld um, group that has extreme in the title. I don't know exactly what it is. I really didn't plan on coming on here and... and, and uh, and promoting it, but I, I would be remiss to say that I don't have my own group, and I get to talk to um, fans who have enjoyed my work over 34, 35 years, so that's that's fun, but there's a group for everyone and everything, and uh, you just got to find groups that work for you. In particular, one of the groups that I uh, was really interacting with uh, was this, uh, you know, group that was about bronze era comics, the age that I grew up in, the the age that you've heard me praise time and time and time again. And it is about, uh, you know, that, that same period of comics that were, that I, my love affair with comics, um, began and, and took root and, and has, be, and, and, and really has become so much a part of, 
of, of everything that I do because I'm always constantly referring back to that period. And it was during that time, during that time with those discussing those comics early on that another professional, a professional who I don't have a, a great ton of respect for, a, a professional who is kind of, a, uh, I, I think, kind of adult, um, wandered into the discussion and says, you only like this stuff because of nostalgia. This is all, it's all because of nostalgia. Everything you like during this period is heightened because of your nostalgia for the period. And I took a hard uh, opposition to that. I, I don't believe that to be the case. And, and I don't believe it to be the case now here uh, some seven years later. I don't believe that is um, why I cling to so much of this. And in fact, now I am uh, being confronted with a new, uh, you know, um, um, kind of touchstone in my collecting, which was this early 2000s period, which saw my, I would say my last severe love affair with comics. And it's being under the, it's magnified now more than ever because of Invincible that just wrapped its epic eight uh, episode run on Amazon. And I believe Invincible by Robert Kirkman, Corey Walker, and then Ryan Otley, uh, was I, I know exactly where I was at Mile High Comics in Garden Grove, pulling that off the shelf in the same way that I remember pulling up, pulling Avengers 141 off the shelf and Avengers 161 and Avengers 162 and all of these different comics. The reason that I have such passion for these comics is the quality of the work and the way the stories shook me and shaped me. And so Invincible is, again, 2002, 2003, don't pin me down, it's somewhere around there. And yet now, seeing it on Amazon, seeing it move, seeing Amazon, seeing Invincible and Omni-Man and the entire uh, cast reenact those first, you know, 16 to 19 issues uh, across this first season has really racked up my... Um, my remembrance for how much I love the work, but I loved the work because the work was so well done. Just like at any time that I have um, kind of uh, found this uh, strong, you know, connectiveness to material, it's because the material was so well done. It was, uh, as I as I record this, this is um, May 2nd. This is May, May 2nd as I'm coming to you right now. And this is, uh, I believe, uh, is it is it 12 years ago, uh, 13 years ago, uh, Iron Man number one launched May 2nd, 2008. I can remember bringing my eight-year-old son, Luke, and my six-year-old son, Chase, uh, to, at the time, ironically, Luke is a few weeks from being eight, so he's seven, and Chase is a few weeks from being six, so he's, he's five. And I bring them both, and those photos appear today. And it gave me this feeling, this warm feeling, because they were like, Dad, what's Iron Man? Why are you taking us to see Iron Man? The summer before, they had rocked and just been blown away by the Transformer movie, the first Transformers movie by Michael Bay. And so here I am taking them to see what they would really come to believe is like a mini, a wearable um, Transformer suit. And I, I've covered it on this podcast before how that period of Transformers 2007 to Iron Man, 2008 to Transformers 2, 2009 to Iron Man 2, 2010 to Transformers 3, 2011. That is this age of the mechanized warrior that was never stronger than it was during that period. And 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 they fed off each other. And the way that, that those mechanized warriors, whether it was, you know, uh, a Transformer, whether, whether it was Optimus Prime, Battling in the forest, or or Iron Man and and War Machine battling all the the the, the different dreadnoughts, uh, that was just an amazing age, an advancement in in CG effects that we were that melded with some great character stuff. Even in the Transformers, those were fun fun movies. And uh, come on, uh, you know, as we're getting into nostalgia, come on, Megan Fox, those Transformers movies. I mean, Shia LaBeouf. I mean, the two of them running around trying to survive all the craziness of those Transformers, that was fun stuff. And it, that feels like in my head it was yesterday, but I know it wasn't. So so nostalgia, what is it? What is nostalgia? Where is something nostalgic and, and just something that you 
you appreciate on its own merit. So we're going to go straight to, because um, why wouldn't we, the definition of nostalgia. So check this out. The, the Merriam-Webster, Merriam-Webster definition. Merriam-Webster, we've been looking this up since I was a kid. Definition of nostalgia is, is really interesting. The origins of nostalgia and the definition itself are very interesting. I'm going to go with the second definition first. A wistful or excessively sentimental yearning. Look at these big words. A wistful or excessively sentimental yearning for return to or of some past period or irrecoverable condition. Okay, that is the second term that they have listed for nostalgia. The first term is the state of being homesick, homesickness. So that is really, really interesting. In in a, in a sentence here, they say, uh, you know, to dwell even fitfully on the past for James was to risk crippling nostalgia. The past was the shadow side of will and therefore must be rejected. That is from an article, or Nation, February 26, 2007. Another one that they give us here. My own feelings were that since I jettisoned employment, marriage, nostalgia, and swampy regret, I was now rightfully a man aquiver with possibility and purpose. Okay, so all well and good, but we've got this wistfulness yearning for yesterday. So then further on, we read, nostalgia is a sentimentality for the past, typically for a period or place with happy personal associations. The word nostalgia is learned from the Greek compound, uh, meaning, uh, I can't even say this, votok, nostos, whatever, meaning homecoming, a homeric word, uh, meaning pain or ache, and was coined by a 17th century medical student to describe the anxieties displayed by Swiss mercenaries fighting away from home. That, my friends, is a painful origin for nostalgia. Nostalgia is associated with a yearning for the past, its personalities, its possibilities, its events, especially the good old days or warm childhoods. So again, nostalgia's definition has changed greatly over time, consistent with its Greek word roots meaning homecoming and pain. Nostalgia was for centuries considered a potentially debilitating and sometimes fatal medical condition, expressing extreme homesickness. The modern view is that nostalgia is an independent and even positive emotion that many people experience often. Nostalgia has been found to have important psychological functions, such as to improve mood, increase social connectedness, enhance positive self-regard, and pro and provide existential meaning. Dude, nostalgia. We th There it is, okay? So... When I am looking back on a comic book that I bought in 1975, I will not have this warm, fuzzy feeling about it other than, um, well, I know where I got that and, and I know, you know, basically this is the weird thing that haunts me. I don't know that I have a photographic memory. Other, some people have said I do, but I can tell you the time and the place of every comic book that I've ever purchased. Um, the, the further back we go, the stronger that is. Now, is that nostalgia? In some cases, yes, but for some of these books that were these amazing events that uh, that that, that uh, transformative works, it's all kind of the fact that I was there in the time as this was occurring, and 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 I was there when Frank Miller became Frank Miller, when he became more than the artist, you know, on Daredevil, and when he became this amazing kind of comic book auteur, this writer, illustrator, masterfully moving the panels to, to speed up, slow down. I could hear the soundtracks, his written word, the incredible gestures, the action choreography that, that, that was the best I'd ever seen in comic books. I was there when he became that guy, seeing him as listed penciler, then the next day listed as writer, illustrator. And I was excited by everything he did, sought out more and more of it. George Perez, those Ultron issues, when Ant-Man takes down the Avengers. It is cited by almost everyone as, as one of the finest periods in the Jim Shooter era of the Avengers, which is, even by Marvel's own current brass, considered, he Jim is considered one of the finest, most accomplished Avengers writers of all time. He had a mastery of, of, of handling a large cast. He had written the Legion of Superheroes as a teenager. He wrote Legion of Superheroes for DC Comics, Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. He got paid as a teenager, mailed in stories. They hired him to, to be a regular freelancer, and he was a kid. He literally was a kid. He has a 
once in a lifetime story that nobody else has. I think the youngest published uh, writer on a regular comic book series is Jim Shooter. It is nothing short of fascinating and amazing what he did. And, and, and the thing is that because of his adeptness with large cast, he was able to, to take that and transfer that directly onto the Avengers, where he somehow found everybody time for a bit, a bit of nuance, some characterization, some important, you know, revelation while mixing in this incredible action all in 17 pages. What Jim Shooter was doing, what Steve Englehart was doing, what Chris Claremont was doing was they were mastering what Frank Miller was doing, mastering the form when I was a kid. My love of that is not nostalgia. I have nostalgic pains for it. I pang nostalgically. I can open, I can walk over to my spinner rack right now, pull that off, off the spinner rack, hold it in my hands, and I remember feeling the same way that I did when I was a kid encountering it. But it is because that the book is so good. Let me give you a flip. Man from Atlantis. That is a TV show. It starred Patrick Duffy before he became Bobby on Dallas. It was a show on CBS. Man from Atlantis. And in Man from Atlantis, he was literally a guy from Atlantis. And he swam, and he swam a particular way. It was funny. We all imitated it in the pool as a kid. If you were that age and you were going to your friend's house or the public pool on the weekends or whatever during the summer, there was a style that he did like this worm swim. And we all imitated it. But he didn't have um, tremendous kind of strength that you would associate with an Aquaman or a Prince Namor Submariner. He kind of foiled pirates on the sea like like modern day you know pirates and and some some mad scientists but for for the most part man from atlantis was not a terribly exciting tv show and it made for an even less exciting comic book series that marvel published for about 8 episodes and it was just not my cup of tea on any level and i i those books came out at the same time of these books that i'm talking to you about they had some nice gil kane covers but at the end of the day Man from Atlantis was not a well-produced comic. I look at that. I can. I know I bought it at the same 7-Eleven and the same same Stop and Go and Foodland that I bought these excellent issues of the Avengers and Daredevil and X Men. But I did not. I do not have a an ankling to go back and flip through those books for a reason. They were disappointing to me. I did not hold them in high regard. Nowhere near the way or the, or, or or how I held the work that I'm speaking of you now that I have such a strong connection with that goes far beyond nostalgia. And and Man from Atlantis is the perfect example of, you know, every... Uh, there were a lot of comics I don't sit here and I don't tell you about because I didn't love them. And I wasn't watching uh, some some artistic transformation on the page when buying the adaptations of Man from Atlantis. That That wasn't happening for me there. So those books are at that same period there, at that, that same time, but I don't, I don't love them. A lot of what Marvel was doing in the 70s and the 80s and what DC was doing at the same time, the top two publishers, they were doing exciting work. To this day, I have mentioned this book, Legion of Superheroes, on Twitter the other day. There was people saying, you know, name a cliffhanger that blew your mind as a kid. Brad Meltzer, award-winning author, I mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, hosted these 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 historical kind of uh, shows on, on on National Geographic. I mean, Brad is a big deal. He immediately went all in on that on a Legion cliffhanger from the 80s in the time that the Legion was was considered the best it ever was and the best it would has ever ever been. And and and, and so it's like it's not just me. That we all felt the same thing when that character because I don't want to blow it in case you 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 go out there and you start reading the Great Darkness Saga. I don't want to blow it. What's on the cliffhanger? But it's like, this is the cliffhanger. Oh man, what a magic time. Like no other. All these people were jumping in to comment because it happened in like 1982. I am not nostalgic for 1982 when I look at that. I'm nostalgic for that particular moment that I encountered at 1982. So again, I beckon, what is nostalgia? So it's around this time that you say, Liefeld, you're really hung up on this nostalgia stuff. I am. I'm not going to, I mean, we're discussing this today for a reason. And, and it's that, you know, th this idea that was asserted to me in this Facebook group, oh, you just like this because of nostalgia. No, no, this is, it is not nostalgia to admire the craft 
at its, at its highest form and to remember that you were there when you saw it come together. Maybe the admiration for being there plays slightly into it, but, but I am speaking of and always speak of the work. And that is when, um, when I encountered Walt Simonson, who had been writing and drawing Battlestar Galactica, another really great licensed comic book that I admire because it was so well done. And there's a long stretch of the Star Wars comic book that is so well done. And I have nothing but complete admiration for those comics. I, I have them in trade paperbacks and omnibuses. And I have them for a reason because I like to revisit them. I like to admire them in these handsome collections. I don't know that if it was just, hey man, I have a yearning for that time in my life that I would continue to reinvest in one of these groups, of course, I'm still in this Bronze Age group. The other day, I showed every single possible collection and edition that I have of the Byrne, Austin, Claremont, X-Men era. If Marvel uh, reprints it, I'm, I'm buying it. Uh, whether it's a dollar reprint, a $2 reprint, a $30 trade paperback, a $50 you know, nicer trade paperback, a uh, 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 hundred and some dollar omnibus, I'm in. I've done it. A $70 like hardcover edition, I've done it. I have all these. I showed this and I said, I am uh, Marvel's, you know, I, I am Marvel's go-to guy. I am their ideal customer when they're thinking of this because I always go in every time. It may, it, They may have to do it 12 times in 12 months to test me to see, am I really going to buy this again? But they're smart. They, they, they enhance the collections just a little, tweak them just a little from, you know, here and there and everywhere and uh, add maybe some sketches this time, some different stock paper, a different color, a different colored cover. Uh, I'm always, I'm always buying it because I am, I admire the work, not the time I admire the work. The reason everybody else comes short next to Byrne and Austin is because they did so much together and they did so much first. Whether it was the really reassertion of Magneto as Marvel's most terrifying menace and bad guy, or the creation of Alpha Flight, or the um, battle with Moses Magnum in Japan, the battle with Garok and teaming up with Kazar and Zabu in the Savage Land, um, Murder World and, and Unleashing Arcade on the X-Men, the Dark Phoenix Saga introducing the Hellfire Club, the um, revisiting of the Imperial Guard that was introduced prior, just prior, with with uh, with Dave Cockrum's amazing echo of the Legion of Superheroes, which someday we will scratch that itch deeper, but not today. But uh, th there was a journey we took for you know from nineteen. If if you count Giant Size X Men and you, and, you, and you go all in from the beginning of the Len Wein Dave Cockrum Giant Size number one, it's about a five and a half year journey. Um, almost six years. It stretches to 1981, a magic time with these characters where we went on adventures greater than any they'd been on before or since. Like I said, the high point for many of you is the Jim Lee era X-Men where by and large, because he was my age when we were encountering the burn stuff, he did what any self-respecting X-Men fan would do and he did sequels. And we've covered that and there's entire episodes I've done on the birth of X-Men as the biggest franchise in the Marvel Universe. But the reason that Jim wasn't doing that was for nostalgia. It's because those were so good that we hadn't been back to the Savage Land in so long and we hadn't had a rematch along the lines of what Jim pulled off with Magneto since John Byrne had a volcano fall on him. They had found him in other underwater Atlantean civilizations. Cockrum did a, you know, a, a Magneto story, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same. We are um, yearning for, I, I believe, the very best that is out there, the best and most uh, well-executed version of that work. I go to Invincible, and, and here's my thing with Invincible. I was wildly uninterested in the superhero comics that were coming out from Marvel and DC. I just remember at the time Invincible came out, it was either shortly before or during this where I think it's called No Man's Land. It covered the Batman books. Uh, it, it The bridge blew up or they destroyed the bridge into Gotham City. So it became like, you know, Escape from New York. It was isolated. It was rife with crime. 
And uh, I didn't like the creative teams. I didn't like the art. I didn't, and when I say I didn't like it, I just didn't favor it. It wasn't badly done. It wasn't for me. Let me, let me be very clear. It wasn't for me. I wasn't going to pursue it with my money. Nothing was poorly drawn. It just wasn't for me. Another reason, again, sometimes like with myself on New Mutants, you follow stuff that's kind of tired and maybe worn out. And by giving it a fresh coat of paint, you you ignite the base. Todd did it on Spider-Man 2. There was some kind of, I think, some, some dull versions of Spider-Man being created. Todd went in there with so much style, so much panache, and just completely turned all our eyeballs upside down, and we were engaged in, in Spider-Man in a way we never had before. The Batman titles, which were still among the premier titles of DC, in, in, in involved in this no-man's land, I was out. I just, I wasn't into it. I wasn't into the Superman books. I definitely wasn't into the Avengers books. It was a creative just mess for the X-Men at the time. They were they were completely uninteresting. This is right before... Um, no, no, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the Grant Morrison X-Men run had, had kind of was winding down and from its initial launch, I mean, the Grant Morrison X-Men run with Frank Quietly never got better than their first story arc. And we've covered that because Frank Quietly was then only doing a few issues a year, if that, if that, and they were handing the chores off in all different directions. It was very disjointed. It was hard to follow. So I was kind of removed from the X-Men, removed from the Avengers, removed from the Fantastic Four. And none of the mainstream comic book were, were, were rocking my world. And I come out with these, you know, if you've heard, I did an entire interview with Robert Kirkman. I believe it's episode 50 of this podcast. And we talked of my love of Invincible, how I came to know him from Invincible. But why do I love him? Because he took the Superman-Superboy dynamic to a place that was R-rated, that was rife with adult conflict, mystery, great twists, great turns. Corey Walker and then Ryan Otley were these brand new artists who had style to spare. They drew really great characters, had really great styles, good, good, good costume design, um, both on the more cartoony spectrum, but there was... Um, you could see their 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 influences, but but really good storytellers, really solid, great, impressive storytelling beyond their years. I felt like like really good, like like out the gate, fantastic page design, storytelling, pacing, and again, part of that is is the collaboration with Robert. It's a it's kind of you know what he does, where he wherever he goes, he he has explained to me in the past how much he was involved with the storytelling on both Walking Dead and Invincible, and it it's to this day. He has a very specific way he likes to tell a story. He wants to see it done in that specific fashion. And Invincible was, for me, the best and premier superhero saga of the 2000s. It rang the bell. Its big cliffhanger that it ended its first year on was mind-blowing. It was it was just jaw-dropping. We all saw it coming, but it was violent. It was because of the characterization that he had built up. There was consequence there was cost, there was emotion, but um, I loved the brutality. I loved the absolute, almost NC-17 level of violence that I wasn't getting anywhere else. And uh, and and just the, the, the cleverness of the plots, there was echoes. He definitely has his own Justice League running around in there, his own Teen Titans. He was cued into the echoes, the image guys. We had already done that. Of course, Supreme was my own kind of... Uh, version of an asshole Superman, but by introducing, you know, the dynamic, you know, between Omni-Man and Invincible, it just made it that much more resonant and interesting and again, fun, super fun too. But part of that fun was that violence, that that next level, that adult theme. And I dug it and it was, uh, it came out regularly. I was all in. I, I could not possibly miss an issue. And uh, I, there, I, I felt like the transition from Corey to, to Ryan was very seamless. Their, 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 their styles benefited each other. So stylistically, uh, uh, Walker and Otley, they just, they just blended. It was a seamless transition. Cockrum to burn on the X-Men was much more jarring. This was like two guys who had a very similar approach to line work, line weights, figure work, faces. And it was a great, it, it was, it was great going from Corey to Ryan, but that entire run, I feel like the first five years, you know, of Invincible was this new 
Spider-Man for a new millennium. It was it was Peter Parker, except it was kind of with Superboy powers, and you know you felt his angst, you felt his pain. Robert had a giant, big, sprawling plan. It had cosmic ramifications. It it it, it was it, it it had it had interpersonal demons and dramas and 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 teenage angst and oh my gosh, romance. It, it was great. Invincible was the book that really reignited my interest in comic books at that time. Because you got to realize also, Invincible was coming out during a period where, I, I will say Image was the most wounded. I'm going to call it most wounded. After I left and after Jim left, it, I really feel like there, were, um, there was kind of a callous, everybody ran to their corners. Mark kind of managed Top Cow. Eric was 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 scaling back with Dragon, still doing it, still doing a great job, you know. But one book doesn't define a company, especially when there are thirty or forty or fifty more books coming out. And and at this point, Image was really doubling down on on a lot of um, graphic kind of sex comics. Um, it, it was weird. It was a weird time for for, for Image Comics. A lot lot of uh, just bad girl titles, I guess, for a lack. Uh, of something else to say and and it was uh i think everyone in agreement that is the low point of image todd was i think being distracted by not one but two separate lawsuits at this time the hockey guy sued him and beat him and then neil gaiman sued him and beat him and and during that stretch i, I think todd is completely not focused on image as a label at all so thank god we have invincible coming in and flexing hard and again, over at Top Cow, you had all of Top Cow's talents was now were somewhere else. Brandon Peterson went to CrossGen, then Marvel. David Finch went to Marvel. Um, um, Mike Turner started his own label. So, so really, I mean, again, I'm going back and and dissecting this period. And it is, I think, if you are yourself as I am, an, a historian, historian, a fan of Image Comics, that 99 to 2004 is a real low point in regard. To image comics there's a couple couple you know gems that jump out invincible is one of them walking dead's the other um while it was at image powers by bendis and and fleming oming sorry oming was 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 fantastic um but so 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 that comic re-engaged me and it was kind of a perfect uh tie-in to the mark miller frank quietly authority now people are split between what they they love, oh, there are people who just think the Warren Ellis Brian Hitch authority is all that, and that it it is the definitive work. I I did that stuff did not resonate with me at all. It was all very well done. It there is no no part of it that isn't well executed. I found it to be just boring. Um, again, more Brian Hitch to me his best work where it all comes together for him, and all of the steps along the way built towards his ultimate work. Season one and season two is high point. Uh, Brian Hitch again. He goes for a more adult theme, even more than than the Authority, because you're seeing Captain America and some of these other characters get bloody and curse and have more adult themed, you know, issues. So that's where my appreciation for Hitch is at the highest. It's not on Authority, even though that stuff is again splendidly, professionally executed, well done. There is not a flaw in the work, but it, it you can have a band or a guy who plays perfect instruments, but you know. It's the song, it's the tune that's carried that excites you. And, uh, you know, there are a million voices who sound better than Britney Spears, but who have none of her 30 giant hits that rocked, you know, the world for, for 15 years, okay? So, I mean, again, it just comes back down to style and tunes. And in this particular instance, when Mark Miller and Frank Quietly followed them on authority, you had this Superman echo in Apollo and this Batman echo in Midnighter and they were lovers and 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 I felt like Mark just everything that could be forbidden he he ramped it up excessive use of powers the, the forbidden aspects of science and cloning and 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 just Mark and Frank quietly it was brutal it was bloody again Mar what Frank quietly has that Frank Miller has is that when he punches you, you feel it. When he throws a punch, you feel it. It connects. There's a blood splurt. I literally, there's an accomplished artist. I won't say his name. I saw his art that's being advertised for an event that's dropping soon. And it's two giant forces battling. And it is um, so quiet and dull. It's all well drawn. 
but it has no energy. And energy matters on the page. It, it does to me. It did to Kirby. That's where I got the crackle. That's what I seek. Quietly has it. Frank Miller has it. They're so good at throwing punches and kicks and blood splattering. And it was super violent, but the ideas were outrageous in the authority. I mean, the, the evacuating the planet for a giant showdown with this ultimate cosmic sorcerer against the members of authority. He's going to exact his vengeance, but the negotiated terms are that everyone on planet Earth has to be evacuated before the battle. And those pages where Japan and Australia, New Zealand, you know, New York, Los Angeles, I mean, Tokyo, uh, uh, Brazil, everyone is being evacuated, escorted through these giant portals that, that have been pre-negotiated where all the population centers will relocate during this time. And if the super cosmic sorcerer wins, they all come back under his domain. If the authority obviously wins, they all come back and life is the same. But the questioning of power, the government, Bill Clinton and, and the world leaders on, you know, on screen with Apollo and Midnighter is the authority lays down their terms of how they're going to establish the world. And then there was some really ugly, violent uh, stuff that went down. Mark created these overt echoes of Marvel characters and uh, that, that came back to the fact that Jack Kirby, like a Jack Kirby echo is kind of manifesting all of them under this kind of dire scientific experiment that they're that they're putting a guy named Craigstein, which is Jack's, you know, uh, original name. It, it, it's fantastic. The ideas, the violence, the echoes, the conflict, it all kind of, it laid it down first. That's where I fell in love with this new flavor. And it kind of felt like, again, Frank Miller's Dark Knight, like on a monthly basis. Um, I mean, definitely Apollo and ba Midnighter by Miller and Quietly are these versions of Frank Superman and Batman. And, uh... <laughs> Invincible kind of took that baton when they left because then quietly goes with Morrison to X-Men for an excellent, outstanding, you know, run. But it's uh, it's not as brutal and violent and consequential as The Authority was. I mean, the book's called The Authority. They lived up to it. The Authority. They asserted authority in the book. It was great. Invincible lived up to its title, Invincible. So now this 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 cartoon series has just ended and word of mouth is building and people are seeing what a great series this is. So I'm going and I'm getting my slipcase hardcover editions that came out 15 years ago. I'm getting my phone books, my omnibuses of Invincible. I'm getting my action figures out because I want to study them more. I want to relive that. Is that nostalgia or is that admiration for some great work that I'm being reconfronted with? You know, again, being a part of something, watching Star Wars come, I will say it till I die. The summer of 1976 to the summer of 1977, it is like a 10-year gap in regards to science fiction production, science fiction films and their production. That opening, you all, you got to wonder what, I mean, what George did with Star Wars as opposed to the big sci-fi epic of the summer before with Logan's Run. Now, Logan's Run was filmed in 75, okay? And, and, and Star Wars is filmed in 76. So they, George couldn't have seen Logan's Run when he was making Star Wars, but he was definitely running up against every other sci-fi film prior to that. And it is so much more exceptionally executed, imagined. Um, that there, no, uh, there, there is no waxy creature that you point to the side of the corner like in a Sinbad movie and go, eh, all these other effects work except for that. Maybe Harryhausen didn't, you know, put everything he could into that miniature there towards the end of his career. But, um... Star Wars didn't have that. Everything worked. Everything clicked. All of the miniatures, the the puppetry, everything just fantastic. I don't have, I don't have, I, I do have nostalgia for being a young kid with my bowl kit and my hang ten shirt and my jeans and my flip flops and going to the theater and seeing it repeatedly and I could smell that theater and the popcorn and the coke and the candy. But my admiration for Star Wars as it was executed, the characters it introduced the world that it, it exposed me to, that is not nostalgia. That is admiration for ideas and concepts that I happened to be living in when it was born. I don't have a yearning to go back to that theater even though I took my family to the theater that I originally saw Star Wars in not knowing that it would be bulldozed a few months ago. Uh, a few months later, we, we saw the A-Team, the, the Liam Neeson uh, 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 A-Team movie that came out 2010, 2011, 
And then it was the Anaheim Loge. It was on Ball Road, and uh, and it was gone. Okay, I mean, gone in 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 one day. They, they bulldozed it. They 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 widened the area for the outdoor you know mall. They re, they they expanded the post office. And do I when I drive by there, do I have nostalgia for that? I do. I, I have ex- nostalgia for all the movies I saw there. Um, I, 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 I love that my family, I took them to see, to the Anaheim Loge, to, to see a current movie. And it was in the exact same, they had not, they had turned into a dollar house by that time. And so, so, but, so it literally the, the concession stand, the arcade games <laughs> and, and the actual theaters were the exact same. And that, that was fun. That's nostalgia. But, but continuing to go back to the Burn Austin X-Men, to the Kirkman Walker Otley Invincible Okay, that is not nostalgia. That is admiration for the highest execution. Some of you, I have, I, you believe that your high point of your comic book collecting was when my peers and I were doing our Marvel titles and then transitioning to our image work. And I am so fortunate that you came along on that ride and we did the numbers and we generated the excitement and we have the data to absolutely back up that that was a time that genuinely excited fans. I was excited as a professional that you as a fan were excited by my work and the work of my peers. And we all fed into one giant machine in, in, in the comic book world and it was fun and it was electric. And those are great comics. I go back to my X-Force and my Youngblood stuff that I love the most. Some like Youngblood 6, Youngblood 7, Youngblood 10. Those are some of my favorite jobs I've ever done. Youngblood number 2, Youngblood number 4. Um... I look at the early spawns when Todd was super invested. I look at the early dragons when Eric is figuring it all out. Um, very exciting, exciting work. Um, my favorite work by Mark Silvestri is The Darkness, which comes out in 1996. It's with Garth Ennis. It's this amazing crime meets horror, supernatural, you know, comic book about a hitman that, you know, encounters the devil and demons and makes a pact. And, oh, it's it's fantastic. I relook at those books for the quality of the work, not for nostalgia for 1996 on any level. So if I go into a 90s group today, of which I'm also a part of on Facebook, if I go into that 90s group and I admire that work, it's not for nostalgia. It's because that is where I believe his work was the best executed, where the best version of Mark Silvestri lives is in those first five, six issues of the darkness. Now, so another group that I'm in, okay, let's hit, let's keep, keep our pedal on this nostalgia thing. I'm in some groups that celebrate Saturday morning cartoons, which don't exist anymore, not in the way that they did when I was growing up. I, I'm in a group that celebrates uh, Sid and Marty Croft, who made uh, Lidsville and H.R. Puffin stuff, and they made the 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 the, the Bugaloos. Okay, you're like, life. What are you talking about? Look up the Bugaloos. You'll you'll see. Um, this is all early '70s stuff. Electro Woman and Dinah Girl. Um. Um, Wild Boy and Bigfoot. Okay, this is the stuff that I grew up on, these shows that I loved. Most importantly, they made The Land of the Lost. Land of the Lost. Marshall, Will, and Holly on on a routine expedition. Okay, so so, so I never miss Land of the Lost. I loved that they went through a cave and a waterfall and came out into a prehistoric world. But when I turn on and I have my box sets that I bought 15 years ago when they were first released, when I got them at Sam Goody, uh, I, 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 I pop those in and, and the, the, the dinosaurs still look terrible. They, they look like bad, bad, the worst claymation, tiny and grumpy. They all look bad. Chaka barely passes the makeup, decent makeup test. Some episodes it's rougher than others, but what I do love and always loved is the Slee stack. They're this alien race that lives in the prehistoric time that, that Marshall, Will, and Holly are in, and later their 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 uncle that comes in after them, um, that that they that they exist in, in this prehistoric pocket. And uh, the Slee Stack, my favorite episodes when I was a kid, was when they were in the caves and the lighting was cool and the crystals, and and the Slee Stack would come with their arms out pursuing you know the family, and they look cool. But the minute they ran outside and you saw those just kind of most basic clay shaped. Uh, you know, dinosaurs. I just, I wasn't into it at all. I, it, it took me out. I like the Slee Stacks. They looked a certain way. They looked cool. Do I want to see a big budget of that someday? Not made fun of by Will Ferrell, more straightforward. I do. I, I, you know, I don't yearn for it. I don't go on this page 
to yearn for it. I make very few posts there. I like to see some of the behind-the-scenes photographs that have been posted. I don't have anything signed by the cast. All I have with that is my memories of what could have been. I would go out in the backyard because this is 1975, 1976. So again, I'm seven, I'm eight. I'm going out, I'm in the backyard. I'm playing Land of the Lost. Um, I'm having my own like make-believe adventures. Some of you had them. I, I definitely had them. Um, I would always always involved the sleeve stack they were cool to me they were like the cylons okay later on the cylons and 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 just they had there's a creepy factor to them they look good the design component on the characters were great and 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 i felt like they pulled them off on a cheap saturday morning budget when i go into the some of those groups some of those groups are mad that there's not a big budget serious movie being made and they are they really go go all in on the 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 time the, the 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 period where these were being made and 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 maybe there's a little more nostalgia going on there um i don't admire land of the lost my memories of it are 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 more nostalgic than my admi admiration for the the craft i recognize it was made on a budget i recognize that back as a kid the dinosaurs look crappy to me as a kid then they look crappier to me now it has not appreciated in my mind although i like the concept and yet I don't have a strong appreciation because the craft, it was a kid's show. It was done the best it could. I don't have the same appreciation. When I watch some of those other Sid and Marty Croft shows, I do like seeing the strings and seeing kind of the mistakes and the bad makeup of Lidsville. Um, it was fun. I loved that stuff as a kid, but those are definitely left as a kid. They were not operating on the same level of a Close Encounters, which is probably my even more than E.T., my most appreciated, loved Spielberg film. Richard Dreyfuss' plight, um, the UFOs, the mountain base, uh, uh, going to, to, you know, is it Devil's Peak? Uh, just such, they, they re-released it in theaters a couple years ago with a brand new cut. I, I We were there that day to appreciate the craft, not the nostalgia. I couldn't sell my wife on, hey babe, would you go with me? over to the really super nice theater. We're going to have really super nice seats. We're going to go in the middle of the afternoon so we're not going to be able to we're not going to fight the crowds. We'll, we'll go on a Sunday afternoon and we'll see this re, you know, re uh mixed, remastered uh by Spielberg himself of one of his classics. You know, I can't sell her on would you go and relive 1977 1978 with me again? No. She's not going for that. I can say, "Babe, you've never seen this. It is one of Spielberg's finest, most amazingly well-crafted pieces of cinema ever, and it, it it's it's mysterious, it's heart-wrenching, it's 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 um it's scary, it's it's tense. That's what I can sell her on the execution. Now I cannot and will not and have not asked her to watch one single episode of Land of the Lost with me. Okay, so let's establish. You know, again, some of the stuff that was done better back then is because it was done better. Not because it was back then. And, and, and I think that is, the, that is worth repeating, okay? Some of the stuff that was done better back then is because it was done better, not because it was back then. And I really, really can't emphasize that enough. Uh, my, my nostalgia for Star Wars is not such that I will watch the Ewok movies on Disney+, Plus now that they've been loaded up, even though they came out in the mid to late 80s. I don't, I remember seeing them once and thinking, I don't need to see these again. Wilford Brimley is a nice man. I thought, you know, it was some stunt casting and I never loved the Ewoks to begin with. I watched for the creatures and the stuff and the puppetry, but I don't, I don't yearn for Star Wars that bad. Okay. Um, I, I, I yearn for the good stuff, the stuff that I like, the Clone Wars, the Mandalorian, the original Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, all of it. I, that's the stuff I go in for because it was well done. It was well executed. The Matrix will stand the test of time because that first movie is as perfect a movie as you can make, as perfect as Star Wars is. I do not have a yearning for 1999. What I what I do when I go back and see that movie is watch the Wachowskis executing at the highest possible level. Against all odds, really, in a movie that nobody believed in. So, I mean, it makes it even more impressive. All the stunts, all the effects, the world building, the characters, it's amazing. So, again, nostalgia. Is it a yearning? Is it a desire to go back or are you appreciating what was done? Those early image books were exceptionally well done. We were working together, calling each other up. Hey, can I have so-and-so appear here? Hey, can I have Savage Dragon battle Bad Rock? Hey, can I have Spawn appear here and taunt Chapel in the alleyway? All of it, it worked. It was great. It was fun. We were, we were hungry. We wanted to prove 
are naysayers wrong? That stuff is executed at the highest um, possible level. I can have nostalgia remembering walking into Danny Mickey and Jonathan Sabal's office. They shared a very large office at Extreme and watching them both inking different pages of mine on different projects, maybe Bad Rock uh, under under John Sabal in, in the last issue of Youngblood under Danny Mickey and then handing them off to me so I could finish the faces and maybe do some tweaks on the hair and, 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 and admiring just the amazing ink lines that they were putting down on the figures and the robots and the backgrounds and the action and the effects. And and it's th- that is a magic time. I love to go back and uh, and 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 revisit us all gelling together, um, walking out to the bullpen, looking at what everyone's working on, whether they're penciling pages or the background guys are helping out Danny and Jonathan by ruling the borders and doing the speed lines and and constructing and and and, and using their rapidograph and their fine pins to do the backgrounds. I mean, that's nostalgia. The the the, the plaid shirts, the short shorts, the high socks, the high tops. Okay. But when I get into a conversation with my son about how great Michael Jordan is, I'm not being nostalgic. I am telling him without fail he is the greatest basketball player of all space and all time, and I have been watching basketball since the 1980s, so I know of such things. I know of these things. I know that Larry Bird is underrated and has been diminished by this uh, this, 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 uh, this generation because they didn't watch the difficulty with which he played and the highest, the consistency with which he played, the way he would score and defend and all the different moves. And uh, it's just, it's funny because my kids will tell me, oh, you're just nostalgic for that era. No, I, I'm talking about great athletes, great talent executing at the, at the top of, of, of what they do. And that is, again, embracing fully, completely, 100% these comics of my youth. And now my nostalgia, if it will, which it isn't, Invincible is when I'm in my 30s and I have my kids. I'm recounting to Robert Kirkman that, that, you know, I remember dropping my kids off at the youth program on a Tuesday night and saying in the parking lot the whole time, pouring over the new Invincible. And, and you know, an hour stretched to 70 minutes. I said, I, I, can go, I can go the other 20 minutes and pick them up. It's only a 90-minute, you know, program that they're going to this evening. So, and the whole time I'm reading Invincible number 12 and I'm I'm pouring over Invincible 11 because these are the summer issues these are the issues that came out that year and this is the stuff I would do I would just park it and I would pour over it and I would let it inspire me and Robert Kirkman Invincible inspired me and Corey Walker Invincible inspired me and Ryan Otley inspired me and that's what we're all looking for and whether that inspiration came in 2003 or 1977 or 1982 or 1992 or 1993 it's because it was executed at the top of its of its ability these people those lines. Um, I remember listening to Todd. Todd's quill run across the Bristol board. If you use a crow quill, a 102, a 107, and you dip it in ink, and you, and you as, as adept and as good as you get, whether it's Scott Williams, Art Bear, Todd McFarlane, myself, Danny Mickey, whatever, whoever's using it, you'll hear a scrape on the tooth of the board. I mean, there are sounds these make. Those bring back memories. That Todd inking on Bristol board is exciting. Watching it in his studio, in his house in Washington, um, watching him ink pages of Spawn was was exciting. That is more so nostalgia. But at the same time, that work is among the best he's ever done, which is not nostalgia. So again, we've we got on the nostalgia bike today. We took it out for a spin. We covered Land of the Lost. We covered Invincible. Sid and Marty Croft got their 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 you know um, their day in the sun on this on this podcast. I'm going to tell you, Thundar the Barbarian. I tried desperately to get those rights. I tried desperately to do that comic. I want to do it not because I was 11 or 12 when it was on the air, right as cartoons were kind of phasing out. That's not why I wanted it. I did. I I, I wanted. Thundar, because the concept is badass. It is so badass. Barbarians, the future, robots, a broken moon, a disaster. It has all the killer elements. It has Jack Kirby influence, Alex Toth influence. It was a fantastically executed cartoon. It lives in my mind. I have, again, the DVDs, the the, 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 nice, the nice copies. I take them out frequently. I have them playing when I work. Thundar is fantastic because Thundar is well done, not because Thundar is a bygone product of 
early 1980s. I tried to get it. I wanted it. Herculoids. I love the Herculoids. If you've never known what the Herculoids are, Google it. H-E-R-C-L-U-O-I-D-S. Herculoids. Herculoids. Hard to spell. Herculoids. Just go figure it out. The, the internet will fit, finish it for you. But um, bottom line, this stuff is, again, Alex Toth, part of that too. High talent behind the scenes creates work that we admire no matter when it came out. So I reject the nostalgia argument. Let's go full on. I reject the nostalgia argument. Just because it happened in 1977 doesn't mean I appreciate it. All the bad shows, the bad music, the bad comics, the bad movies from that time, I don't yearn for them. I don't want to be back in the Lodge Theater in Anaheim watching some bad sci-fi film, okay? Um, I, I, I don't want to relive that. I want to go back and watch how I admired every frame of George Lucas' 1977 masterpiece or George or Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters, okay? That is what I long for. Same with the comics. Same with all the good stuff, man. It's, it's, it's really, we are admiring certain, certain works executed at a certain level of, of excellence at a certain period of time will always live with us and always deserve our admiration for how well they're done. And uh, so I, I, I know that nostalgia, especially in the collectibles market, is blowing up. And, 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 and there are people who believe that it's blowing up just because people have a fondness for it. But what do they have the fondness for? They have a fondness for the good stuff. They want Michael Jordan rookie cards, okay? You know, much more than they want a Sean Kemp rookie card. They want a Michael Jordan rookie card, okay? They want a Kobe Bryant rookie card, a LeBron James rookie card. Yes, LeBron, almost at 20 years in the league, now has... You know, again, it's kind of like invincible to me. I'm like, I was in my 30s, which as a 50-year-old dude is 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 crazy. But I go, I can go back there yesterday and remember that feeling and that inspiration. We always seek that which we admire. And we admire it because it was done so well. So guys, thank you uh, for, for, for hanging out with me. This was definitely a topic I wanted to dissect, get under, pin poke prod nostalgia when is it when isn't it why is it why isn't it we have we have covered that don't even get me started on how bad i want to redo big jim what is big jim stay around we will we will talk about big jim when we talk about more of the toys and the playsets uh, of an age in a future podcast but big jim i don't even know if i have it in me but that would maybe be the last the last uh uh, uh, way around the bend for me before I close off a career. Big Jim, Jack Kirby box art, and 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 uh, and a successor, uh, a competitor from Mattel to rival Hasbro's GI Joe, and and again, why? Because there's a John Buscema comic book that goes with John Big Jim. There's there's Jack Kirby art. That's why. That's your answer. Again, why nostalgia? What nostalgia? I love it. So guys, thank you for riding this bike with me. Um, we, uh, hopefully we didn't go off any treacherous cliffs. Hopefully we stayed the course, stayed on the path. I super appreciate all that you do, all that you, um, you hang out. And, 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 and so in, 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 in keeping with my, my newfound promise to the podcast overlords, I must ask you, could you please, if you have not already subscribe to the show, tell a friend, spread the word, get, get the word out, be, be, be telling the people, um, um, what we're doing here. Because what we're doing is, is is pretty fun. I think it's pretty fun, right? And 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 uh, and if you could leave reviews, reviews are great. And in keeping in keeping with you subscribing, spreading the word, telling your friends, I, I'm going to continue to share these amazing reviews. Okay, so check this out. You know, I, this is a review that was left for me. I, I, I'm so appreciative of it. It's uh, it's 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 from Simon Rusky. Simon Rusky. It, the, the title is Five Stars, almost like going to a convention, okay? If you've been fortunate enough to go to a convention where Rob has a panel, his enthusiasm at those events translates seamlessly in this podcast. Thanks for helping pass the time, Rob. Hope to run into you in person at a con- uh, again at a convention soon. Thank you, Simon Rusky. This is Dad of Two Sons. Fantastic. Gave me five stars. Such a wealth of knowledge, whether it be current state or unknown history of comic books. Thank you for that. Rob, excitably, contagiously, is a legend in the industry, but also a huge fan of comics. It's awesome to see how excited Rob is for other creators' work. Thank you so much. 
Thank you. Um, um, so, so, so th- th- I, I appreciate the reviews. I, I, we're in the podcast business. I am loading this up. I am building this catalog. I hope that you are enjoying the ride. Um, sometimes it's a bike. Sometimes it's a boat. Uh, who knows what we're going to get in when we decide to set sail, set sail or, or, or fire up the rocket. But thank you for taking the journey with me on social media. I am at Rob Liefeld on Instagram, at Rob Liefeld on Twitter. I am at Robert Liefeld, the full name, at Robert Liefeld. Both have blue checks to tell you I am who I claim to be. Um, I'm all over Facebook. I'm, I'm all over social media. Hang out. Talk to me. Let's, 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 uh, let's chat. I love hearing from you guys. Thank you again for this time. Thanks for being part of it. You know the drill. You are going to take care of yourselves. You're going to stay safe. Stay safe out there. And we will talk again real soon. 